Good morning. Fantastic. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. Wasn't the worship team amazing this morning? <laughs> I've always wanted to say that when I was on, because like, you know, people get up and say that. It's just ridiculous to say it about yourself. Uh, very good. Very good. Well, I'm excited uh, about the, the message, the messages that I have for you over the coming weeks. You know, my, uh, my brother sent me a text some time ago. He's a writer, uh, and he's writing an article for The Monthly, and uh, he's not a believer, and he sends me this text because I'm the one Christian in the family, and so he needs to get some perspective. He sends me this text. He says, hey, bud, I'm writing about an airport. Do you think Christian life is like being in an airport, hanging around, waiting for your plane to come? And so in his mind, the Christian life is like, all right, so here we are, we're on earth, and we hope that we're going to go to heaven one day, and uh, so now we just have to wait until that happens. And I actually think that many people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. And people who are not compelled by the message of Christianity or the message of Jesus actually don't really know what is going on. They don't know what we believe. And I want to show you this morning what I think many people think that you believe, what many people think that we believe. David, can I just get Mini-Me on the screen, on the stage? And I'm going to do this. And that's going to work. Can you hit that for me, Jared? Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to draw something on the screen for you. <clears throat> so, and Nathan, if you can just make that bigger, if that's possible. Uh, here, here's what I think many people think that we believe. Okay, so here's Earth. Right, that's you, that's Earth. And then here's you up here, or me. And we're just sitting on Earth. And then we've got life, right? And so... Depending on whether you, you go through life and sometimes you do some good things, sometimes you do some bad things, maybe it depends on you know, if you believe the right thing or you believe the wrong thing, then at the end of your life, then, then you, you either go to a place called heaven or, or you go to a place uh, called hell. And so this is what people think you believe. And some of you are probably sitting there thinking that that kind of is what <laughs> that kind of is what I believe. But what is this? This is this is sitting on a plane waiting for your plane to, to sitting on an airport waiting for your plane to arrive and hoping like hell that your ticket is going to get you to heaven. And what is heaven anyway? What is hell in this picture? And what are we meant to do whilst we're waiting for our plane? The, the biggest problem with this idea is the life and teachings of Jesus. That's the biggest problem with this idea. Because this is not what he was all about. This is very me-centered. The other problem with this is the Bible. This is all about me. 
But I don't know if you've noticed, the Bible's not actually about you. It's relevant to you, but it's not about you. Unless you're Spanish and your name is Jesus, you're not going to find your name very often in the Bible. Unless, is there any Melchizedeks in the house this morning? No. Okay, so, so the Bible's about God and his story and his interactions with humanity. So there's something wrong with this picture. I'm going to try this again. Go for it, Jared. <laughs> He's got my back. Kirstie mentioned on Good Friday, I asked you to imagine, if you were with us, I asked you to imagine if you were a first century Jew, let's say you were a fisher person, and you were living in the area of Galilee, the region of Galilee. You're living in a town called Capernaum. You work hard as a fisher person, and uh, you go out with your family. It's a family business. And you hear about this prophet, Yeshua, Jesus, who's traveling around, and he is preaching and teaching and doing many miracles. And you hear about this incredible guy, and so you think, I'm going to go and hear him preach. You make your way down to the synagogue and there's a crack in the wall. You can't get in because there's too many people there. So you put your ear to the crack and you listen. You listen to hear what Jesus is speaking about. What is he teaching about? And it's an interesting question to ask yourself, what do you imagine that he's teaching about? Because the way that you ask, answer that question kind of tells you what do you think he was all about? What was the message he was trying to bring? Was it love? Was it the golden rule, do, a, do unto others as you would have them do to you? If, if it's those things, because Jesus wasn't the first religious teacher to say the golden rule. If it's those things, Jesus' teaching, on, if that's the very center, if that's the foundation on which he taught, it's pretty weird teaching. It's like, love your enemies. Like, Why? That's hard. If that was the whole thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It only makes sense when you see that in the context of a bigger picture of what he was talking about. Was he preaching the gospel? Like, he died on a cross. I'm going to die on a cross. Probably not. He hadn't done it yet. I don't think he wanted to give away the ending before it happened. <clears throat> you know, in the book of Matthew, Matthew summarizes Jesus' message right up front. At the beginning of his public ministry, in Matthew 4, verse 17, we get this summary. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he's telling us that everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said was about this idea that the kingdom of heaven is coming near and that that would cause us to repent. That would cause us to stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're thinking. Because something is happening that is going to cause you to radically reorganize and reshape your priorities and reorganize your life around this thing 
which Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. So that can seem pretty obscure to us. The kingdom of heaven is near. What on earth is he talking about? But the first century Jew that's at the crack of the synagogue, this would have lit up all kinds of things in their mind. Because they're living in a region. Let's imagine you're living in a region. You're a fisherman or a fisherwoman. And you've grown up in the same way that many of you would have grown up with a nativity story and you would have grown up with stories about Jesus. These people have grown up with the Old Testament scriptures. They've learned the prayers. They've learned the stories. And what have they learned? They've learned that God throughout history brings his kingdom into being by calling people out, by establishing a relationship with those people, a covenant, and he establishes a new reign. So like people are thrown out of the kingdom and then, uh, sorry, out of the garden at the beginning and they're split. So God uses Abraham. He calls Abraham and his family out to say, I'm going to show the world about what I'm like. Then they get caught up in slavery. It doesn't go well. They get caught up in slavery in Egypt. And what happens? He said, I'm going to call out my people and establish a new reign, a new kingdom. Because Pharaoh, the evil one, has taken over. And so the, the Jews in the first century see God as their redeemer the person who is going to rescue them. And at this point, when you're standing at the synagogue with your ear to the crack in the the wall, you're thinking also that the Romans, the new Pharaoh, the new evil has taken over your area of the world. They haven't been there long. But this area means, this, this part of the world means so much to you. It has great historical significance. And so these Romans do these displays of military might. Every day they've got troops of uh, troops like marching through and, and, and the taxes keep going up. Your uncle had to sell his farm because the taxes kept going up and now he's working as a basically like a slave servant on the land which was his. And so there's this new oppressive rule where you live. And then this prophet comes along and he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, so what do you start thinking? You start thinking, things are looking up. Jesus didn't get killed or crucified for talking about love. He got killed and crucified for talking about outrageous things like the kingdom of heaven is near. That is a politically charged statement. And so this is what he was talking about all the time. And it's not just relevant for people in the first century. This is something which can be actually absolutely wild for us here today. So we're going to do, over the next five weeks, we're going to do five main themes. What I've done is I've pulled out scriptures from all of Matthew every time that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, there's, he talks about it 46 times in the 28 chapters of Matthew. So he's talking about it a lot. I think sometimes we read the gospel and somehow we just miss that. 
I don't know how we do it, but we just miss it. And you get to the end, you say, there was something nice about walking on water and food multiplying. But we miss what's all throughout. And I think what we need to do is read with fresh eyes and discover the kingdom that Jesus was trying to introduce. And so each week we're going to discover different characteristics of the kingdom. Jesus taught about it a lot because it wasn't simple enough to just say, oh, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and everyone gets it. Because his kingdom is so radically different from the, the experience that we have that he actually had to talk about it. He had to teach about it. So we're going to discover together. And so I got some titles. The week, next week, we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the keeper of keys. Who belongs in the kingdom? And what kind of status do they have? Week three, we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the baker of bread. Because the kingdom of heaven grows like yeast in dough. And what's our part to play in that growth? The next week, we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the shrewd investor. Is it worth what it's going to cost you to be or to get the kingdom? And the last week, we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the author of life. Because God is the author and the finisher of life. And we're going to talk about how to prepare and live prepared for the end. It's going to be good. But Jesus went around teaching about the kingdom. So I want us to discover together what the kingdom is about. But you'll notice as you read the gospel that Jesus doesn't just teach about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of heaven. He brings the kingdom of heaven. And so I would ask you to pray with me and believe with me that over these five weeks, as we rediscover the kingdom together, we wouldn't just rediscover it in our minds, but we would rediscover it in our hearts and in our worlds. And that just as Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, that we would see many healings and miracles. We would see deliverance for people. We would see God's presence coming and shifting and shaking up our lives. Can anyone say amen? Okay, this morning I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven and the roaring lion. There are two kingdoms, light and dark. And there is a cosmic battle between heaven and earth since the beginning of time. And so we're going to discover what Jesus means when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I want to take you on a little tour of Matthew when Jesus is talking about this particular theme of the kingdom of heaven, that it has come near. And we're going to discover something pretty cool together. So the author of Matthew is about to give us, this is right at the beginning, he's about to give us a big block of Jesus' teaching and ministry. And so in the lead up to that, he says in Matthew 4, 23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And then he finishes that block of teaching in Matthew 9, verse 35, He says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Those two scriptures are basically identical. I don't know if if you saw that. And so what is the author doing? The author is doing what good preachers do. He tells you what he's going to tell you, and then he tells you, and then he tells you what he told you. So what he's saying, for those five chapters of my book, I've been explaining to you that Jesus has been announcing the good news about the kingdom and he healed every kind of disease and illness. So he's saying that he's come to announce the good news about the kingdom. 
It's good news. Apparently, it's good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. So what is good news about the kingdom? Well, his implication is that he's already told us. So that means that the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is near. So let's discover together why that is good news. Jesus sends out his disciples in chapter 10. He says, it says, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Jesus is calling us to go out into the world also and announce that the kingdom of heaven is near. So can you just imagine going to work tomorrow and saying to your friend over the coffee cart, uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but the kingdom of heaven is near? I'm pretty confident they're going to give you a, I don't know what you're talking about. And so we need to know what that means, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. What does that, I don't know what, how am I supposed to announce that unless it, means something. <coughs> In chapter 12, it comes, comes around again. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom, that being Satan's kingdom, will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too. So they will, they will condemn you for what you've said. But if I am casting demons out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are interchangeable terms. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So Jesus keeps talking about this kingdom which is coming near. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. That means that the way Jesus is talking about heaven, heaven is not somewhere you go. Heaven is something that is arriving. Okay, so this is a shift. It's not just, the kingdom of heaven is not just a nice way of explaining the broader church. It's the rule and reign of Jesus and his goodness reigning over the world and reigning in your heart. Jesus is the good king of the kingdom of heaven. But in the scripture, there is two kingdoms at play. The kingdom of heaven and Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And it's important to notice that Jesus is not on the defensive. In the story, it says, For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? 
only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Jesus is talking about his ability to cast out demons. So he's saying, who would be able to uh, defeat the devil? Only somebody stronger. Satan is the strong man whose house is being plundered. Jesus is the one who's even stronger. He binds Satan and plunders his house. This message is called the kingdom of heaven and the roaring lion. Who is the roaring lion? Does anyone remember in, in, in Scripture a reference to a roaring lion? 1 Peter 5 verse 8 to 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Does anyone know a lot about lions? Anyone a lion fan? Maybe the, the sports team? I was going to say football team, but that's how little I know about sports. I didn't want to get the wrong <laughs> sport. <laughs> so I looked up the lion's roar. And here's what I found. The lion's roar is one of the loudest calls in the animal kingdom and can be heard from up to eight kilometers away. That's, that is a long way. That's a loud roar. Lions roar to tell other lions where they are, to show how big they are, and to warn lions from other prides to keep away from their home territory. So a lion's roaring to say, hey, stay away, don't come in, don't enter my territory. So if the devil is like a roaring lion, he's not attacking you, he is trying to defend himself. The devil has a territory and he is roaring because he doesn't want goodness, the kingdom of heaven, to invade his territory and drive him out. The devil is on the, offense, uh, the defensive, Jesus is on the offensive. I think for many times we have heard the opposite. The devil's coming to attack you. The devil's coming to attack you. No, he's not. He's in his own territory and he's roaring to try and keep goodness out. So how can the devil ensnare us? How would a lion catch you if, this, if the male lion, he doesn't even go out to hunt. He stays in his own territory roaring. How would he catch you? Well, if you go into his territory, then he might ensnare you. But unless you're going in, you're safe. And if you have the king of heaven and the kingdom of heaven in your heart, then he is afraid of you and not the other way around. He is roaring because there is goodness coming that will drive him out and he does not want to be driven out. The good news is the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus came to declare himself a new king. He came to declare a new reign. And so uh, there's this new concept, not what I was showing you before about earth and me and heaven and hell. But Jesus is painting a very different picture. And I would explain it to you, but other people can explain it to you better. So I'm going to show you uh, a video. We're going to watch that together. And then uh, I'll catch up with you after. So thank you, Jane. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space 
gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and... They kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So, in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. That's good, right? And good news. So if you can just switch the uh, screen back over for me, Jared. Heaven... The kingdom of heaven is near because the kingdom of heaven is coming back to earth. And that is good news. And that means that it gives us a whole lot more perspective when Jesus taught us, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So the big question that I have is, okay, so we talked a lot about heaven and earth, but we didn't talk a lot about Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Where does hell fit into this idea? When God created the earth, in the beginning, it says what? God created the heavens and the earth. What does it not say? God created the heavens, the earth, and hell. Okay, so hell is something that came later. And so there's an interesting scripture in James which says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. So the implication is that hell is actually something that we have created through our autonomy by separating ourselves from God. Hell is something that through our sin and through our actions and our thoughts and our words, we create on earth. We unleash on earth. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable 
to draw us in like this. Because it's possible to have, just as we can have heaven on earth, it's possible to have hell on earth. And I don't think that we should discount this. Some people live, that they have a life which is a living hell. We have darkness and sin in the world which creates, which unleashes hell on earth. And so the story of heaven and earth coming back together is actually a story about how God wants to get the hell out of earth. He wants to get the hell out of earth. And I would suppose that actually you and I also want to get the hell out of earth. And I think that your friend who thinks you believe the top thing and doesn't really, is not really interested in Christianity, I think they also want to get the hell out of earth. <clears throat> we can all agree that selling children for the purpose of sexual abuse is bad. We call it sex trafficking to make it sound a bit easier on the ears, but we all agree we don't want that to happen. We want to get that out of our world. We, we want it to not be a thing. And Jesus, God also hates sex trafficking. He hates it more than we do. And he wants to get rid of it so badly. But you got to understand, God actually hates it so much. He, he, he wants to go further. He doesn't just want to get rid of sex trafficking. He wants to go right to the root cause and get rid of lust. He wants to get rid of lust so that the desire to use somebody else's body for your own sexual gratification is gone. We all agree that murder and genocide is pretty bad. We want to get that out of our world. But God wants to go one step further. He hates it also. But he wants to get rid of rage and anger from the human heart. And so we've got a problem. Because the kingdom, heaven and earth coming together, means that hell has to get out here somewhere. Hell will be expelled. C.S. Lewis said, Hell is God's monument to human freedom. We are free to choose, but, and those who choose not to be in the kingdom of heaven will have their choice honoured. God wants to get the hell out of earth, and we want to get the hell out of earth. The problem is that God wants to get the hell out of you. God wants to get the hell out of earth. We want to get the hell out of earth, but we want him to do it without having to get rid of us. Right? Because all of us are riddled with darkness. All of us have deep darkness on the inside of us. And we say, God, we want you to make this world great, but do it without getting rid of me. And so God comes to us and he says, I want you to stop living your own way and come into the kingdom. I want you to live under the reign of King Jesus. Now, this is, there's a couple of different ways you could imagine this. You could imagine somebody coming to you with a machine gun and saying, I'm setting up a new kingdom. Do you want to submit? And they're pointing a machine gun at you. Something like, it's very simple, right? And you think, gosh, that's pretty rude. But God's not doing that kind of a submit to my kingdom. 
If a surgeon comes to you and says, there is darkness, there is illness, disease riddled through your body, and I need you to go under my knife so that I can carve that away so that you can be made whole and be made well. That is the kingdom which Jesus is establishing here on earth. Can I just ask the band to come? <coughs> I'm believing that over this series, as we discover more about Jesus and, and his kingdom, that he is going to force us to bring all of ourselves to the table and, and to reorganize it around his calling to us, to live under his reign. And he will do that with love, but with strength. And I don't know what it is in your life. Actually, would you stand with me? I don't know what it is in your life that needs to be addressed. But as Jesus brings his kingdom and his reign into your life, as we ask God to say, your kingdom come, your will be done, some things need to leave us. Some things need to be addressed. And Jesus knows what those things are that he wants to deal with. You know the decision that's in front of you that needs to be made. Why don't you just close your eyes as we're here in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence that's right here. Lord, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we want to see the kingdom of goodness, the kingdom of heaven, your kingdom coming not just here in the world, but in us, in our hearts. And we know that there are things that you want to deal with. And so I just ask, Father, as we are, we're going to spend some time singing and praying. I just pray, God, that you would reveal to us the things that you want to deal with. And you would come and you'd begin to do a work in our hearts. You know about the relationship that is unreconciled in our life. God, you know the issues that we have with our body or maybe with the way that we interact with money. You know the pride that's at the centre of our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring that to the forefront of our minds so that we can give that over to you. You know about the habits, the practices that we have formed that we think, man, this is just, this is the normal way of being human. But Father, I pray that you would bring those things to the fore and you would show us a new way. That you would help get the hell out of our hearts. That you would bring your kingdom and help us to submit to your reign here on earth. In a moment, we're going to sing and I'm going to give you the opportunity to just rest in His presence and allow God to speak to you. But before we do that, I just need to ask if there's anybody here who 
you've never made the decision to ask Jesus to come into your heart, if you've never made the decision to come into His kingdom, then I want you to do that this morning. Or maybe you've done it in the past, but you want to return. God is a God of infinite chances. And so I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if that's you in just a moment so that we can pray together and ask Jesus to come into your heart. So if that's you here this morning, if you've never prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to come into your heart or you have done so, but you want to come back this morning, can you just lift your hand for me so I can see it? Thank you. I see the hand. Awesome. Is there anybody else who wants to pray that prayer? Awesome. While we have our eyes closed, why don't we just pray together? Why don't you pray after me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. So all my sin and all my shame can be absorbed. I thank you. You're bringing a new kingdom into my heart. Jesus, I call you my Saviour, my Lord, and my King. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Fantastic. Awesome. Why don't we just take a moment now? Why don't you keep your eyes closed? Lift up your hands. We're going to sing together. And as we sing, why don't you ask Jesus? to come and do a work in your heart for His kingdom to come, His will to be done, to reveal those things that need to shift and change.